This is hell. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell. And on today's show, feminist manifestos throughout history have given women the voice they were historically not allowed to raise within their homes and a chance to dare utter what would not be considered polite conversation by someone who is truly ladylike within male-dominated civil society. Instead, these writings spoke loudly, brashly, with disrespect for the ruling order and status quo that enforced the inequality that was continuously imposed upon them. Their radical tone and content pushed feminism to where it needed to be, far to the left of the liberalism that insisted upon only slow incrementalism, making concessions to institutions of misogyny and patriarchy that were and are at the root of women's oppression. Like manifestos of all sorts, the feminist version are driven by passion and the desire for transformation without concern for contradictions, even encouraging them in their own writing all while persistent attempts are being made by corporations at co-optation of manifestos, including efforts to brand revolution, exploiting and profiting from rebellious energy while distracting the consumer from the more anti-capitalist structural concerns that are at the heart of the true and real rebellion, boiling victories against racism and misogyny down to the physical appearance of the artificial insurgents featured in their ads is the corporate mission. We'll brazenly, brazenly discuss the revolutionary voice of feminist manifestos in a few. We talked to professor of women and gender studies at Arizona State University, Brianne Foss, editor of the collection Burn It Down, Feminist Manifestos. For the revolution, Brianne is the founder and director of the Feminist Research on Gender and Sexuality Group at Arizona State University. She also works as a clinical psychologist in private practice, where she specializes in sexuality, couples work, and trauma recovery. You can find out more about Brianne at BrianneFoss.com. That's B-R-E-A-N-N-E-F-A-H-S, or just go to our website, thisishell.com, and click on her name there. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry. Alex, what did you do this weekend? Oh, make sure you hit the Z on that Foz. Oh, Foz. Foz, Foz, Foz yeah. not Foz. Okay. Uh, I read that. Uh, read a lot of that manifesto book. Verso did not describe this on their website, but there's a buttload of manifestos in that book. There is. There's a ton of them. I The one I really liked the most was the alt-woke one. I really enjoyed that a lot, so we'll be talking about that today. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we can be your regular part of your weekly hangover, this is hell, and Alex has this week's hangover cure. This is the worst hangover cure I've ever read. <laughs> worse than uh, Cincinnati Chili? Yeah, this is way worse, and I've eaten a lot of things that have uh, the word garbage in the title, and this one's the worst. And this week's hangover cure is the garbage plate, in a headline titled... These 10 regional foods could be hangover cures you need, which we referenced for last week's hangover, the abomination that is Cincinnati chili. It asks, is the garbage plate a mess or a masterpiece? The garbage plate hails from Rochester, New York area, and is a plate of seemingly random side dishes that you'd never imagine working together to make something delicious. I do not imagine yes. that. <laughs> a garbage plate consists of two cheeseburger patties drenched in meat sauce, okay, on top of home fries and macaroni salad. That's the gross part. Topped with onions, ketchup, and mustard. Baked beans are also an option. <laughs> it was a dish created nearly 100 years ago when the chef of Nick Tahoe Hots wanted to create a cheap and filling meal for workers coming off the third shift. Legend has it that the name came from a local college student who ordered a plate with all the garbage on it. It makes this week's Hangover Cure, Rochester, New York's favorite, the garbage plate, a plate with all the garbage on it. The future ain't what it used to be. 
this is hell. And if you are a subscriber to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell last Friday, you heard me talk about how my OCD, my obsessive compulsive disorder, a disorder I thought I had pretty much under control, disorder I'm certain many of you have far worse than I do, and I'm sorry for that. Last week I mentioned how my OCD really started kicking in over the last few weeks of increasing protocols when it comes to the leaving and re-entering of my home during novel coronavirus 2019. Having to take off all my indoors clothes and put on all my outdoors clothes before leaving my home and then doing the same thing in reverse when I come back. Making certain I am wearing the correct protective gear to simply go outside with someone like me. It can be... It can be maddening. The OCD kicks in, leading to anxieties about whether you are taking the correct and most prudent measures, and because of the OCD, you know you have not, so you keep reconsidering and re-examining every step of your process, knowing you can't be perfect, and that's when the fear comes in, crashing like waves over you. This awful feeling makes me obsess on the problem, in this case, COVID-19. No, I'm not obsessing on the virus itself, although that would probably be more productive, despite my lack of expertise in virology. Instead, I made the stupid mistake of obsessing on what is being done about the virus. I couldn't keep my eyes, ears, and mind off exactly what is being done to save our lives from the plague, which was a huge mistake if you paid attention to the news over the last few days. I should have been paying attention to the science instead of what's being done. In fact, I was going to write this entire monologue on Friday afternoon, but... Things were changing so fast that I never, I, I didn't know whatever, I didn't know that if what I was going to write was actually going to be timely three days later. So I had to get up early today because, to be honest, I was not certain that something huge would not have happened overnight, potentially changing everything about what I'm reading to you right now. Oh, remember Friday. Oh, how those were the good old days before states within the U.S. started quarantining other neighboring states in the most neighborly of ways by stopping cars with out-of-state plates to see if plague carriers were sneaking their virus across the border and police going door-to-door to see if anyone inside had even visited their neighboring states since the outbreak. Remember back in those salad days when the Trump administration was still hoping the private sector could stop the virus on their own and manage all of its suffering while saving us all with some miracle of the market. I mean, sure, it sucked that none of those pipe dreams of the government having small businesses make much-needed ventilators, a plan that completely failed and cost many COVID victims weeks of suffering, if not their lives. Back when the Trump administration was angry at manufacturers like GM for not doing more before actually ordering them to do more. Remember back then? Those were the days. Remember back before the trillions of dollars of stimulus was passed? You know, all that money that everyone said we didn't have to pay for universal health care or college tuition or forgiving student loans? Back before they gave a huge tax break to wealthy real estate developers and that stimulus package? And remember back before the Trump administration relaxed all the EPA rules on polluters? Remember when Republicans were trying to stop direct assistance from actually being in the stimulus package, saying that giving $1,200 to people who are now jobless was far too much, even coming up with a sliding scale for the rich to get more and the poor to get less. Remember back when President Trump was dog-whistling evangelicals by saying we could all go back to our normal routines on that beautiful Easter when he was going to urge all Americans to pack churches virus or not? In an opinion column in Friday's New York Times, Catherine Stewart, author of The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism, writes, 
This denial of science and critical thinking among religious ultra-conservatives now haunts the American response to the coronavirus crisis. On March 15th, Guillermo Maldonado, who calls himself an apostle and hosted Mr. Trump earlier this year at a campaign event at his Miami megachurch, urged his congregants to show up for service in person. Quote, do you believe God would bring this people, bring his people to his house to be contagious with the virus? Of course not, he said. Rodney Howard Brown of the River at Tampa Bay Church in Florida mocked people concerned about the disease as pansies and insisted he would only shutter the doors to his packed church when the rapture is taking place. Yeah, these are the people who got Trump elected and will again in November because, yes, the Republican Party has become a suicidal death cult without a care in the world because, hey, they know they're all going to heaven and you definitely are not, especially if you did not vote for Donald Trump. Between Fox News Republicans waiting for the market to save us as we inconveniently die and their evangelical viewers who could not care less about the end of the world actually encouraging it, this is bet not the best time to be alive, so maybe evangelicals are onto something. But if evangelicals were truly acting Christian, and they intentionally do not as they see any Christian act as blasphemous, as if any Christian act is a mockery of Christ, they would demand the Trump administration lift economic sanctions against countries like Iran and Venezuela, whose healthcare systems are suffering under U.S. sanctions, suffering to the point of Iran now having mass graves for COVID victims that are so big you can see them from outer space. Meanwhile, according to the Wall Street Journal, stores are being flooded with customers buying groceries in order to make certain they are supplied during the virus, guns apparently to make sure nobody else gets their supplies, and weed to make you increasingly paranoid or chill about your supplies, depending on the strain of weed you are smoking. None of this seems to be embracing the unity that so many Fox News hosts were look, calling for, so many Trump supporters, supporters were insisting we must adhere to during this time of crisis. But what they mean by unity isn't unity at all. That's why they're buying guns. And guns don't really say unity as much as they say, get the fuck away or I'll blow your fucking head off. No, what Trump and his supporters mean by unity is loyalty, if not fealty to the president, who is very upset that states are not showing him appreciation for his lack of willingness to help states out with the much-needed medical supplies that they desperately, desperately need. He wants their appreciation for pitting them against each other in a bidding war over life-saving health care equipment and then losing that bidding war to the federal government as Trump outbid them while telling them to get their own damn masks and ventilators. All we want, we're told, is to go back to the old new normal, which we are being told was some utopia that we all desire to live in once again. You know, the new normal where hospital executives who make six and seven digits a year flee to their faraway enclaves upon hearing the first warning of coronavirus in the states holing up while their hospitals are running at peak efficiency for investors and shareholders. Peak efficiency that fails the public in providing adequate health care, meaning people die while well, the people making the most money off the hospitals enjoy life in their mansions a very long distance away from those deaths that their business model is now causing. The old new normal where hedge fund managers openly cry about COVID-19 for the cameras that make billions in investments profiting from the virus right before the bottom fell out of the market. The old new normal where people like Charles Koch lobbied to defund the Centers for Disease Control then pushed the Trump administration to raise any guidelines from the erase, I should say, any guidelines from the federal government related to the virus that may be having a negative impact on the economy. Yep, the old new normal. 
They want to get us back to is one where Charles Koch first makes us unprepared for a pandemic, then forces us to go back out into the pandemic while he stays sequestered away from all the infected as he manages his wealth. The price of that horrible tar sands oil has dropped through the floor, meaning that the industry for some of the most environmentally damaging resource exploitation in the world may have dropped out. That's probably not keep making Charles Koch very happy. But do we want to go back to the new old normal where oil companies were making Canada look like Mordor? Unions representing grocery store workers are now asking customers to not bring in reusable bags as they may have COVID on them. So we're back to the new normal of everyone having plastic grocery bags that end up getting incinerated and not recycled, contributing to climate change. Is this the normal we want to get back to? The old new normal where Bernie Sanders says Cuba has a good health care system? And he's labeled an authoritarian apologist. Meanwhile, according to Newsweek, The Week, and other sources, Cuba has come up with a miracle cure for COVID-19, and they have sent their medical personnel to administer it in China and Italy. Do we want to go back to the new normal of ignoring positive stories about Cuba's health care that could have life-saving uh, ramifications because commies are bad? Is that the old new normal we want to go back to? According to Newsweek last Tuesday, Cuba has mobilized its medical corps around the world to distribute a new wonder drug that officials there say is capable of treating the new coronavirus despite the United States' strict sanctions that continue to pressure the communist-run island. The drug is called Interferon Alpha-2B Recombinant and is jointly developed by scientists from Cuba and China. So, yeah, there's no way we're going to be hearing about this in the U.S. media. Do we want to go back to a journalism and news media that ignores these stories, never asking President Trump about a supposed supposed, alleged Cuban miracle cure because, hey, you said Cuba, so you must hate America. Do we want to go back to the United States where our protocols in addressing this pandemic all reek of privilege without a concern for any of the countless people who live in poverty and or on the streets, the homeless? Think about it. What kind of social distancing can you get when you can't afford a big enough home to get far away enough from your family members? Not everyone has access to running water for washing hands or hand sanitizer or soap for that matter. Sheltering in place is a privilege because you have to have a home to do so. And for those who are in bad relationships, even violent ones, sheltering in place can be a death sentence. Considering that return to the old new normal, my OCD is kicking in again. My anxiety about whether I can prepare myself for a return to the old world order is leading to a growing fear that I cannot go back to that hell. And there's no amount of latex gloves, N95 masks, indoor or outdoor clothes that can protect me from the nightmare of the old new normal imposed upon us every day. Hearing people say all they want to do is get back to normal reminds me that normal was hell, which leads me to believe that any desire to return to that hell proves yet again, yes, this is hell. Coming up, feminist manifestos and how they are the greatest threat to the status quo. We'll also have Rotten History and what's happening on the rest of this week's shows. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell Sanity in Talk Radio. So clearly and sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell. Feminist manifestos are rude. They're crude. They speak impolitely. They yell and scream and, and are unfairly dismissed, even by liberal feminism. Here to tell us all about the power of the Feminist Manifesto, professor of women and gender studies at Arizona State University, Brianne Foz is editor of the collection Burn It Down, Feminist Manifestos for the Revolution. Welcome to This Is Hell, Brianne. Thank you so much for having me. You can find Brianne 
online at briannefas.faz.com. That's Brianne, F-A-H-S. You start by citing Valerie Solanas' 1967 Scum Manifesto, which you say has one of the all-time great declarations of war against the patriarchal status quo. Uh, you write that, or you point out that Solanos writes, uh, life in this society being at best an utter bore and no aspect of society being at all relevant to women, there remains two civic minded, responsible, thrill seeking females only to overthrow the government, eliminate the money system, institute complete automation, and destroy the male sex. Now, I'm on board with most of that, the destroy the male sex part, I'm not too sure about. Why do you think that is one of the all-time great declarations you have founded feminist manifestos? Why is this a great declaration of war to you? And has it become more or less relevant over time? Well, Valerie Solanas is one of those wonderful characters who you know, continues to plague people in terms of, was she serious? Was she writing a satirical document, people still don't really know. You know, people thought it was satire, then she shot Andy Warhol, and people changed their minds, right? So whether this is a document of where she meant it to be completely serious or not, people don't know. I think it's a wonderful document, no matter how you read it. Sometimes it feels like a document of humor. Sometimes it feels like a declaration of war. Um, And great manifestos do that. You know, they really, they come alive in different historical moments, they go dormant sometimes, and then you reread them again a year later, and suddenly they're magical and alive again. So this manifesto, I think, really you know, embodies everything that feminist manifestos often are, which is absolutely unapologetic, um, militant, forward, you know, really kind of not allowing any room for anyone to disagree. It, they're really unusual documents in that way. They're declarations of revolution. And I think that one and many, many others in this collection are doing that. What makes a manifesto a manifesto? Is it just because the author themselves called it a manifesto? And that way is a manifesto like art. If an artist calls it art, it's art. Well, a manifesto is really about, it's a revolutionary document that isn't, it isn't very careful in the way that it sort of speaks. The tone is very um, often combative or aggressive. It has a very distinct way of not really making room for counter arguments. It doesn't cite things. So it's very different than other kinds of scholarly documents or creative writing. And it has a lot of like very strong emotion right on the surface of it, which is also quite different from so many dispassionate kind of forms of writing. So manifestos, you know, don't mind being very hot-tempered and angry and of the moment. And they're supposed to feel like someone sort of threw them out of a window and they smashed all over the place. That's sort of the vibe that they're supposed to have. Um, And often, you know, they sort of speak to various immediate sort of concerns that are happening right in that cultural moment that, you know, they're not meant to be documents that last forever or that speak to people forever, although a lot of them sort of interestingly do feel that way over time. So again, it's a tricky genre because it's not something necessarily that has a, a super specific form, but the the emotionality, the revolutionary intention, the anger, and the sense that things are urgently needing to change are all very consistent throughout them. I found it fascinating that they are they can be both timely and timeless at the same time. That's one of the many contradictions that you point out about manifestos that I found really fascinating. But are manifestos necessarily known as manifestos at the time of their publication? Even the author, could the author may have not have meant something to be a manifesto and then it becomes a manifesto? Could manifestos right now for the future 
be hiding in front of us in plain sight? Sometimes, yeah. I mean, there's most of them know what they are at the time that they're written, but there's certainly ones in this collection that I don't think were initially meant as manifestos that start to feel and read like manifestos. So you're absolutely right that there's, you know, in addition to the genre being a sort of slippery fish, there's also things, you know, where we look at certain documents later and we think, well, this is absolutely a manifesto, even if the author didn't necessarily intend it to be. But a lot of them, you know, people are sitting down with the intention of writing a revolutionary document of social change, and that's what they're doing. You were saying that they're not necessarily welcoming to critique, but does that mean that manifestos are above criticism? No, but I think, you know, we want to sort of take them for what they are. I mean, when you're looking at something like class-based rage, we want that to be able to exist without you know, without critiquing it in the ways that we would other kinds of documents. Like, you're not thinking about this, you know, with enough historical context, or you haven't cited your sources. These are not things that we would apply to a document that's a manifesto. Manifestos are really about, you know, breaking free of something in the old world order and making something new. They're trying to break ground. And so in that sense, you know, to the extent that they're successful in doing that, maybe we could critique them. Or to the, to the, you know, extent that they produce an emotional reaction in us as readers, maybe we can critique them, but it's not, it's not, it doesn't come with the same set of critiques that we would have for other kinds of documents. You cite Valerie Solanas again, writing in the Scum Manifesto, that her manifesto was for those in the gutter, whores, dykes, criminals, and homicidal maniacs, wholly refusing to pander to nice, passive, accepting, cultivated, polite, dignified, subdued, dependent, scared, mindless, insecure, approval-seeking daddy's girls. Are feminist manifestos then necessarily, inherently class manifestos? And if so, why or why not? I think so. I mean, that's actually kind of a subtext that runs through this whole book. Are documents where people are really, I think women a lot are trying to think about you know, what does it mean to be living in the gutter? What does it mean to be living without as many resources as others? You know, and so I think class-based rage kind of is an overlaying sort of theme here, and especially is something that I think is often underlooked at with regard to women's anger at the world. You know, women live in conditions that are just fundamentally different often than men. And I think you see that this is like a narrative that runs through this. I also think, I love that that thing that Valerie Solana said about who the book is for, because I think also this collection feels like that a little bit too. This collection is not just for a small sort of elite, well-educated audience only. There's something in here for people who often don't feel like they can access themselves in, you know, books at all. And so I really feel like this is a, a book that's really meant for people who are feeling marginalized or lonely or that don't feel like, you know, their voices have a home. There's writers that are published in here that have never been published anywhere and have never had their words published at all. Um, there's writers that are talking about, you know, very unsexy themes like severe poverty and um, violence and rage and, you know, those kinds of things. So I, I do, I do think that not only is that sort of an ethos that runs through the book, but I also feel like this book itself is designed to be accessible and, um, you know, one that, that I hope speaks to people in different ways than most books do. I really, I hate asking this question. This is the question I often end up 
uh, asking to feminists because there is always this sense that feminism is only for women. And I really think that's a really just a dumb thought. But is feminism as a class project, is is it a class project? And does feminism being a class project mean that it is not only for those who identify as women? Is is, uh, feminism only for and about women? Is this more about everybody as a class project? Yeah, I mean, that is, it is a question that I hear a lot. And it's one that is sort of tricky, right? Because there's lots of different versions of feminism. And there's lots of different styles of feminism. And feminism is not something that I can, you know, wholly define for listeners or readers and things like this. At the same time, of course, right? If feminism is also linking up with class-based struggle, then of course it implies way more implications than just for women themselves. You know, feminism is something that it sort of demands attention from everyone, I think, and, and should demand attention from everyone. And the more that people suffer under the systems of capitalism and things like that, the more that a feminist critique of the world is needed as well. So we want to sort of see that linking and we want to see that all the time in people's minds that, you know, there is no such thing as, you know, not joining the feminist struggle if you care about class struggle. That's just fundamentally true. You point out that the validation of women's anger in the late 1960s, a cultural zeitgeist moment that recognized women as finally fed up and truly enraged, made it possible for women to push back against cultural pressures for politeness and respectability. Today, we hear concerns over a a lack of civility when it comes to protesters and activists and demands they have for change. What does it say about being polite or respectful or civil when struggling for rights seemingly upsets all of those societal customs? What does being polite, civil, or respectful mean if a struggle for rights upsets any of those or all three? Oh, yeah, that is such a common way of undermining radical movements and social movements in general. I mean, I'm all for a sort of complete rebellion against the notion of politeness and respectability. Those are usually just funnels that try to consolidate power, that push a more kind of elite way of thinking or functioning, that disempower people. I mean, politeness is is something that's very tinged with gender roles and gender norms for ages and ages and ages. And it's something that, you know, disempowers women from their own anger. It strips people of their own sense of solidarity with people. Um, you know, and, and I've, I've heard this a lot with regard to people's hesitation about, you know, we can't hate the rich because hatred is bad for us. I, I couldn't disagree more in the sense that, you know, when we have anger and rage and radicalism and a pushing back against politeness and respectability, we are also doing that from like a fundamental deep-seated place of love or hope for, for what our country could be or what, you know, what humanness could be. You know, I mean, this is, it's not coming from a place of apathy that people feel those things. It's coming from quite the opposite. And so I think we've created this false kind of binary where, um, you know, lack of civility, let's say, or hatred or anger or taking to the streets or radical protest is seen as as the opposite of, you know, feeling fundamental, deep-seated love for fellow humans. And that's just not true. Um, and I think in this collection, we see there's so much validation of what women's anger, the potential of it for being this very revolutionary thing and for helping us to see ourselves and find ourselves in there. I mean, in this cultural moment, right, we're in the middle of this pandemic crisis. There's a sense of despair and depression that's sinking in. 
But soon enough, there will be, I think, a huge emergence of collective anger if we play our cards right. And that has to be valued. And we can't have that under the guise of politeness and respectability. That's not going to be how this goes. And that's not going to get people what they need to get through this. Uh, one of the things that you point out in your book and many of the uh, different manifestos that you have uh, you know, we've contributed or you have in this collection are those that are collectively written. In doing your research, did you find that to be more common within feminist manifestos? And if that kind of collective writing of a feminist manifesto, uh, manifesto uh, does, what does that reveal about feminism when so many are written collectively? Yeah, I love that too. I love that because it really pushes back against the idea of the individual sort of in their tortured state, you know, writing a manifesto alone in a room. You know, this is not how many of these are written at all. These are written by people who don't even want to take credit with their names, right? They want the manifesto to have the name of their group or their collective or their, you know, kind of undercover group sometimes. I think that's that's a really important feature of feminist manifestos is that you have people working together to create this vision for a new world or what could be possible. And I, I just can't say enough how absolutely important I think it is for us to think in those terms as much as possible. You know, what is possible? That is one of the biggest levels on which we are often impoverished, right, is to not be able to think about new possibilities or to be stripped of our sense that it's even something that we're allowed to do. And so a lot of these groups of women are sitting down, you know, trying to think together about what is possible. And I can't think of almost anything that I find more powerful and important than that. And so I hope, you know, readers will enjoy those manifestos as well, that there's, there's, you know, ones where we don't even know who wrote them because they only stay with our collective identity. And we're going to be talking about one of those in a couple of minutes about the alt-woke manifesto that I just found fascinating. You write that manifestos pry open the eyes we would rather shut, forcing us to reckon with the scummy, dirty, awful truths we would rather not face. If manifestos do open our eyes to the ugly truth around the world, what impact does that have on their popularity and acceptance? Is that what makes them unpopular because they try to wake us up to the scummy, dirty, awful truths that we experience every day? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I've had many people tell me that they didn't even know there were such a thing as feminist manifestos. You know, many people have heard of the Communist Manifesto or some of these like, you know, big classic manifestos, and they often haven't even heard of other kinds of manifestos that have a much more um, strongly feminist overlay. So I think, I do think that's true that sometimes, you know, when you're dealing with the genre that, and also with one that's so overtly emotional, you know, especially within the academy that is frowned upon in ways that it always, you know, enrages me that you're not supposed to teach or write or interact with documents that are, that are very on the surface level, just very, very, very emotional. Um, and so that that degrading of writing that is impassioned and emotional, I think, also is part of why we we're trained to not take these things seriously or to, you know, to resist them. But I think, you know, so there's something about this collection, too, when you look at it as a whole, that you start to really realize, like, even the manifestos that frankly disagree with each other, you find them compelling somehow. And there's ones that even if you hate them, they're they're interesting, you know, and they're provocative and they definitely make you think about your own politics and, you know, the limits of those politics sometimes. So again, I, I don't even write myself out of that. Sometimes for me, even reading manifestos can be 
unpleasant. It's it's almost like you have to wince when people are talking in this way or kind of, you know, it, it takes a lot to sort of steel yourself to read these in certain ways. But at the same time, at the other end of it, I always feel like when people speak the truth about themselves and the world, you feel like you can breathe again or there's oxygen. And I, you know, even if it's something that you don't initially like, I think it's really powerful and important. And you point out how feminist manifestos travel in time and space. Your collection includes stuff going back to Sojourner Truth from 1851 up until 2018. You have a wide variety of diverse views. And so when I was thinking about that, that traveling in time and space, we were talking about the timeliness and timelessness of it. But last August, we spoke with Bathsheba DeMuth. She is the author of Floating Coast, an environmental history of the Bering Strait. Bathsheba explained how Western European political economic systems do not work in the region around the Bering Strait between Alaska and Russia because they do not have the abundant agriculture or manufacturing capability of the region when American capitalism and Western, uh, where American capitalism, Western European socialism, Soviet communism, all have failed there. Therefore, none of those systems really work in Beringia. Can the same be said of feminism? in, In your study, did you find different feminist manifestos with different feminisms based on not just time, but on space, based on saying being uh, somebody who is a white European as opposed to somebody who is indigenous. Sure. I mean, you know, when you look globally at how manifestos travel and the ways in which people are thinking in these ways, it, it definitely matters, the context. I mean, you know, you look at a, at something like, you know, South African feminism. South African feminism has a long history of being absolutely wonderfully, wonderfully, wonderfully radical and militant. They don't have um, nearly the sort of same hesitation around that that sometimes you find in, you know, U.S. and, and Western European feminism. At the same time, you know, there's so many different variations between each sort of region as well. And I mean, of course, we can't, we, we would be very remiss if we don't look at ourselves in this way, too. You know, U.S. politics often embrace the liberal at the expense of the radical. And so you see that in the ways in which manifestos then enter the scene and are rejected or sort of, you know, envisioned as as useful or useless. I mean, I, I always find even if you try to teach manifestos in a classroom, it can be really tricky. You know, people react to them differently than other kinds of documents. And so their emotional experience of reading them or, you know, you teaching them is quite different. But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, what's what's wonderful about them is that people people are writing from the space and place and time and context that they're in. And so, you know, you really get a sense of what it means to like radical become radicalized in your own time and place. And I mean, we're seeing that, I think, right now. I can't imagine that this experience that we're all going through right now doesn't have the potential to be a very like radicalizing experience for a lot of people. And, you know, the, the, the virus will be a way in which people experience their politics for a long time. I found it fascinating that you you write how in 1775 the idea of the manifesto was a top-down order from government imposing something upon the people. And then the people kind of took that authoritative voice that you found in manifestos and turned it on the government. It turned into a document of rebellion, which I just found fascinating. How well, though, can that kind of co-optation work again in reverse? Can corporations, can capital again try to co-opt or at least take control over the idea of a manifesto? And again, 
you know, rebrand that manifesto and that revolutionary voice for their own profit seeking? How easily or how well can that kind of corporate co-optation take place? Oh, they're trying. I mean, you know, there's like a brand of wine called Manifesto Wine that has these sort of catchy sayings on the side or brands of jeans that are using this word. You see the word manifesto used in car commercials. I mean, you know, it, it is quite, I think, alarming and disturbing how much people will try to take this word to sell things or to be cool or to appeal to, I don't know, some some kind of like rich hipster demographic maybe. Um, but I also think, you know, again, manifestos are good at pushing back against that. And like they should sort of again, they should sort of feel like, um, I don't know, like they like they don't have sticking power in that way. Right. And so manifestos are about like sort of the screaming that happens in that particular moment. And they, like I said, they can have resonance later on, but they don't really work, I think, as like a sort of corporate co-optation. Although, honestly, I don't think we will ever see corporations, you know, stop trying to use that as a way to sell or to market and things like that. But it kind of ends up looking sort of, I think, laughable and pathetic more than effective, at least in my view. But I'm biased, of course. But couldn't that actually blow up in their faces just like the manifestos of 1775 did? Couldn't that lead to a popularity of the idea of rebellion within a commercial world leading to potentially people saying, hey, maybe rebellion isn't a bad idea? Yeah, I mean, I think we always have to worry about that, right, about staying one one step ahead of co-optation. You know, even when I write about women's sexuality, which is another theme that, that I work on personally, um, in my academic writing and stuff, I'm always saying that, that like, you know, co-optation of resistance movements is always coming and you have to try to stay one step ahead. That's the best we can do. We will never be free of that, of co-optation and the politics of co-optation. So, you know, everything that we sort of label as something like, you know, let's say sexual freedom, you know, one minute later that will be co-opted in a, in a negative way. And you have to sort of then try to reimagine those politics again, trying to stay one step ahead of it. You know, we saw this with like the politics of the orgasm, you know, it was like this huge, important, you know, part of the sexual revolution that women were allowed to have orgasms. And then, you know, one generation later, you see a, a strong push towards, you know, huge percentages of women saying that they're faking orgasms, you know? So it's like, we have to stay one step ahead of what these, you know, rhetorics of sexual liberation and other kinds of liberation mean. Same with manifestos. We we want to try to, you know, always stay one step ahead of what those co-optive politics look like or feel like, but they will be coming for us. They always are. And you point out that your book is not about legitimizing these manifestos that you've included in your collection, but having people think about why they have been dismissed. Why is it so important to consider why these manifestos have been dismissed while reading them? Well, I think, you know, mostly we just don't give manifestos a fair shake, you know, and people oftentimes people don't even really understand that there's bodies of work to consider with regard to manifestos. That's one of the important contributions of this book that I feel really proud of is, you know, a lot of times maybe people have come across a manifesto here and there, or they've read one or two, but they haven't really thought about how manifestos function as a body of work or how they can be a testament to an entire, you know, hundred year history of the ways that people have been thinking in these ways. So, you know, the notion of, of, you know, writing from the gutter or thinking about trashiness that has a whole body of work around it or, 
um, you know, queer and trans manifestos, the history of, of radical queer movements and things like this, then the manifesto writing within that, that's a body of work that we can sort of look at and consider here. So in terms of not dismissing them, I think it also is important that we that we look at them collectively, you know, that we look at these groups of manifestos and digest them in that way. I think it really helps to imagine that resistance has always been there and people have been fighting these fights for much longer sometimes than we consciously realize. One of the manifestos you include is the Alt-Woke Manifesto, which was written by an anonymous author. It states, there is no term more ubiquitous, obnoxious, and self-serving in our current lexicon as woke. Woke is safety pin politics, masturbatory symbolism, and virtue signaling of deflated left insulated by algorithms, filter bubbles, and browser extensions that replace pictures of Donald Trump with Pinterest recipes. Woke is a misnomer. It's actually asleep and myopic. Woke is a safe space for the easily distracted and defensive pop culture inbred. Woke is the left curled up in a fetal ball scribbling think pieces about broad city while its rights get trampled by ascendant fascism domestically and globally. And that's the great thing about this essay and all these essays. At certain points, I'm really angry. And then two words later in the same sentence, I'm laughing. How common is it for feminist manifestos to target the kind of liberalism of what it means to be woke, enraged, in, engaged in by those who believe they are doing the right thing as opposed to those who are intentionally and purposely doing the wrong thing? How often is it criticizing those who may be well-intended and not necessarily those who are directly opposed to what those manifestos believe in. Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, that's why the divide and the distinction between liberal politics and radical politics is crucial. Often people don't understand that radical does not mean extreme. It means digging into the root structures of a thing. So that's a, this is a radical critique of woke politics, right? In the sense that they're trying to say, at least I interpret it this way, they're trying to say, we cannot stay with these superficial surface level within system kind of forms of change that they don't, those don't mean anything, right? This, this is a, a hollow signifier. What we need is a much deeper analysis of the root structures of why we're all screwed, right? And so I think, you know, this, it's a great manifesto for embodying what the difference between liberal and radical politics are. Liberal politics are trying to work within the existing structures and the existing systems. Radical politics are trying to dig, dig, dig underneath the surface and start start new, try to build something else. And I think, you know, that's something that, that has gotten lost, I think, in the shuffle so much that we, we've misused what the word radical means to just think, oh, anything that's extreme is radical. No, anything that is doing a deeper level, you know, dig into the roots analysis of, of you know, oppression, misery, everything that counts as more as radical. But I, I love this manifesto too. And you're absolutely right that sometimes when you read them and you feel like they're saying things that are true, you just can't help but laugh, not because you're dismissing them, but because that's where great humor comes from as well, as humor comes from these places of people saying things that we know are true. On some level, we know they're true. And so I, I, I have that reaction as well to many of these manifestos, um, including the Scout Manifesto at times. You know, they're, they're profoundly funny in addition to being deeply true at times, you know? Are being woke and liberal feminism oppositions to racism and misogyny that are palatable to the status quo and thus commercially and popularly accepted. Is that what being woke is? It's a capitalist-friendly version of anti-racism. Yeah, and it also, you know, wokeness, I think, 
allows us to sort of classify certain people as this thing and others as not this thing, you know, which is very destructive because it also kind of eliminates people's, you know, subjective experiences that may not have the kind of, I don't know, cultural capital, let's say that wokeness may bring with it. You know, I mean, we, I really, really think that it's important to validate Um, for example, people's experiences of living in poverty, they're not going to be the kind of people often who are running around saying that they're woke in the same way that, you know, I don't know, richer, whiter people are. But you're absolutely right that, you know, these kinds of, I don't know, these kinds of terms or, or categories and things like this kind of minimize like the sense of necessary solidarity that we need to have with each other too. You know, I don't like the, the use of wokeness in the sense because some people get labeled as woke and others aren't. That's just like completely non-intuitive and, and problematic, I think, to like have this classificatory system that doesn't really get us anywhere and it doesn't do anything. Um, I don't know. I mean, in terms of corporate use of wokeness, that does seem to be, you know, true in terms of people's like evoking pop culture and things like that. But, you know, it all carries the risk, I think, of corporate co-optation, of course. When uh, thinking on that uh, kind of exclusion that happens within wokeness, is that typical, you think, of even liberal feminism? Is that is the idea of liberalism to not include everybody, but to exclude, to only... Because I was trying to figure out, are they trying to have the right people explain the oppression that they are going through? Is that what the attempt is? Or is the attempt to just exclude some people from the conversation to undermine a conversation against, uh, you know, sexism and racism? Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard for us to imagine that, like, everyone on some level is entitled to have their own experiences of sexism and racism. and And that all of those experiences in some ways are valid and can inform a radical politics of how we proceed politically. That's a much harder position to take than um, picking sort of spokespeople for those things. Do you know what I mean? I mean, it's it's one of those things that I, it, it's very destructive, I think, to the general, you know, politics of where I would like to see us be, which is, you know, using people's like inherent rage about the mundane aspects of their lives that are terrible as the foundational you know, premises for revolutionary politics. That is that is not very consistent with the politics of wokeness, let's say, you know. Is wokeness, though, and liberal feminism, for that matter, are they at least a step in the right direction, or are those well-intended actions actually undermining the fight against racism, the fight against misogyny and patriarchy? Well, I mean, I... I take the position, you know, that that James Baldwin often argued, which is that there's almost nothing more dangerous than the well-intentioned liberal. I think that might be true in this case, because what you find with well-intentionedness that sort of falls into a within-system form of change is that people often will say things like, well, you know, we just, we need this first, and then we'll get to the more radical critique or the radical politics later. Or, you know, we just need to be patient and wait for change to come. Or they'll say things like, um, you know, we just we, when we want to take it slow and step by step and, you know, we, we can't think in big sweeping ways. That's super dangerous, I think, for in all sorts of ways. And I think for many of your listeners, it'll be very obvious why that's dangerous. But I think, you know, that's why we of course, we don't want to dismiss entirely like I'm never a fan of just like sweepingly dismissing 
all of liberal feminism or anything like this or all of wokeness, let's say. But I do think we need to be extremely aware of how dangerous some of these rhetorics are in terms of our overarching goals here for, you know, getting to a, a bigger you know, more, more powerful and lasting form of social change. We are, it's never, ever good when people are doing the, you know, let's take it slow. Let's wait and see. Let's take the lesser of two evils. You know, moderate perspectives are good. I think we, we've seen the hazards of that in such a vivid, you know, technicolor detail, um, both lately and and historically that I, I just can't imagine that we're not a little bit more wary of that by now. And, And this collection is really an effort, I think, to, to try to focus our attention on, you know, what what does it mean we think in bigger sweeping terms? Or what does it mean when individuals that we normally strip of power to do that are empowered to think in these ways and to tell us their their views and their worldviews? You know, and I think we need radical feminism. It is the way forward. Um, you know, it is the way forward, I think. And radical politics in general are the way forward. Anonymous writes in the Alt-Woke Manifesto, the moderate midwifed the the birth of the alt-right through bipartisan compromises. Moderate liberals are basically content to vest trust in their vaunted Democratic Party as it slides further to the right, thereby underpinning a level of discourse friendly to the far right. It's worth remembering that the end of the 20th and the beginning of the 21st centuries were a period of diehard cooperation between liberals and conservatives in crafting today's authoritarianism. Does liberal feminism also give cover for the rise of the more far-right misogynistic types that flourish within the alt-right? Is that another issue, another problem with liberal feminism? It gives cover for the far-right? I mean, I think one could make that argument. I'm not sure... I'm not, I don't know. I would have to think about that claim more before I sort of jump in. But I definitely think it's possible. I mean, when you have... When you have arguments of, you know, make sure you work within the system, it fundamentally validates the system. It fundamentally validates the rightness of that system. And the system itself becomes the container in which you can sort of shuffle things around. But the container never changes. The shape of that container never changes, if that makes sense. So I just don't, it does concern me, you know, that anytime you have a politics that wants to stay exclusively within the existing structures and systems, it validates the rightness of that system and gives way to all sorts of things that we may not intend, right? I mean, that's what I'm saying. The well-intentioned liberal is well-intentioned. I don't doubt that. That's a thing that's true, right? People, you know, want the best for each other, maybe, or they feel like moderate politics are the, are the way to go. Um, and they mean that sincerely. There's a sincerity to it. But you're right that when you sort of, you know, adopt the the notion that we we validate the system as it is, you know, whether that's our electoral politics system or um, the ways in, you know, the, the current economic system or whatever it is, that can lead to really, you know, insidious, problematic results, you know, not the least of which is the rise of the alt-right and things. So, yeah, I think I think there's there's some truth to that, although I would I would nuance that a bit with what I just said, you know, so it doesn't come across as completely just dismissing all of it. We don't want to dismiss all of it, but we want to try to, you know, I don't know. We want to try to remember that, that there's, when we move in a more radical direction, people are more likely to win than when you don't. You point out that for feminists, the manifesto became an ideal mode of communication as women usurped power typically reserved for men, expressed rage and anger typically denied to them and sought revolutionary goals and principles within the manifesto genre. 
they could be mad. Why were women allowed to be mad within the context of a manifesto, but not outside of that manifesto? And why is it so important to be mad? Mm. Yeah, maybe that's that's maybe one of my favorite questions that you've asked, because I I just can't say enough how important it is to validate women's anger and and what it actually has the potential to do. I mean, I, you know, if we think of all the ways in which women in their normal daily lives, and this is not just here in the U.S., but throughout the world, are stripped of, you know, both individual and collective forms of anger, that is so devastating on some level. You know, in the name of, let's say, things like, um, you know, traditional gender roles or making people feel comfortable, there's such a pressure, I think, within feminism for women to feel like their feminist politics always have to make people feel comfortable or always have to make people feel at ease, right? That, you know, they sort of adopt maybe a, a feminism is for everybody approach and I'm not really threatening or I'm not really that angry or I'm not really disgusted at patriarchy or I'm not this or I'm not that. You know, people disavowing identities that they feel like are scarier or less palatable to people. Um, and, and, you know, manifestos are doing the opposite. They're not in any way trying to make people feel more comfortable or more at ease. They're, they're you know, trying to do something else. And through anger, I think we see the real transformative potential of that. And, you know, of course, women do feel anger. They just don't express it a lot. And they feel it in all sorts of ways. You know, you see that right now, even in the ways that women are now trapped in their homes with their families. And they're starting to realize like, oh, yeah, I thought I was, you know, in this, I thought I had come a long way with regard to my my politics of domestic work. And yet I am now responsible, let's say, for taking care of all my kids or my partner, you know, that you see there's so many ways in which women's anger functions to be, you know, in potentially transformative ways that often goes sort of in this, I don't know, under the radar sense. So manifestos are doing the opposite. They're using emotionality and all the things that women are accused of that they often try to distance from, right? Like being too much you know, women are always accused of being too much. That's a constant sort of thing that almost every woman on the planet has been accused of being too much in their, let's say, their emotions or their anger or their this or their that. And, you know, in, in manifesto genre, people are too much on purpose. So it's it's a it's a taking back in some ways of even the fundamental accusations that are lobbed towards women um, about their about their emotional and political lives. I think that's really exciting. I've got one last question for you, Brianne. We have been speaking with Professor of Women and Gender Studies at Arizona State University, Brianne Foz, editor of the collection Burn It Down, Feminist Manifestos for the Revolution. You can find out more about Brianne at BrianneFoz.com. Our final question for each and every one of our guests is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You write... Who gets to say things also shifts and changes with manifestos. Manifestos are more often found than they are officially published, giving them an ephemeral, unedited, and immediate feel. Once mostly the domain of the art world, manifestos at their core want to radically upend and subvert public consciousness around disempowerment giving voice to those stripped of social and political power. And I was really glad that you were quoting uh, the Italian futurists from the early 20th century, because I think those are the first manifestos I ever read when I was in college, even before Communist Manifesto. Mm -hmm. So three years and five days ago, back in March of 2017, we spoke with Jessa Crispin about her book, Why I'm Not a Feminist, a Feminist Manifesto, which is featured in your collection. More recently, actually one year ago to this very day, we spoke with Cinzia Ruza about feminism for the 99 
99%, a manifesto which she co-authored with Tithi Bhattacharya and Nancy Fraser. To what extent does the fact that those are officially commercially published limit their ability to be true manifestos? Yeah, I mean, this is the contradiction here cannot be minimized, right? I feel like this all the time when I teach manifestos within the context of the academy as well. It's a completely bizarre thing and one that doesn't make a lot of sense on some level, right? You're teaching these these documents that are meant to be anti-institutional and revolutionary and activist in nature, let's say, and you're doing it, you know, within the sort of hallowed walls of of the academy and same with this book you know trying to corral these manifestos into a book is a profound irony that is not lost on me they are wild animals you know these these manifestos are in some ways not meant to be corralled and so doing so is a weird kind of contradiction i felt like that also when writing the biography of valerie solanus you know writing the biography of valerie solanus is a very weird thing to try to do you know so many aspects of her life and her persona are about someone, you know, being firmly against the idea of someone else telling her story. Um, and so I think, you know, the best we can do is sort of live with those contradictions and try to do right by the work as much as possible and, you know, feel shitty about it sometimes. <laughs> and you know what I mean? Like not try to minimize the that in any way. There's just no point in minimizing that. And I mean, I think, you know, when you have um, something like this that's now like a book that's being sold or distributed in some way. You know, my hope is that it will be, you know, passed from person to person or, you know, obtained by any means necessary, quite honestly, um, to be used how by whoever needs it by, you know, in that way. But there's no way to totally feel comfortable or settled with that. You know, like this, this is a document of, um, you know, that contains things that aren't really containable. So, it's an unresolvable contradiction that, you know, we kind of have to work with to the extent possible. That's a good question, though. I love that question. <laughs> Thank you very much for being on our show this week. By the way, Brianne, you have an amazing voice for radio. I just wanted to tell you that. You should, you should be doing radio more often. I cannot thank you enough because this is a fascinating collection. And you're writing at the beginning on what a manifesto is, what it means, is real. It really helps you out in understanding and seeing kind of the consistencies from one uh, uh, manifesto to the next, even though they contradict one another. So I really enjoy this collection a lot, and I really appreciate your writing at the beginning of your book. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. You can find out more about Brienne at BrienneFoz.com. Thanks again. Thank you. Take care. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is hell. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history on April 1st, 1964, April Fool's Day. Let's see how they celebrated it in Brazil. 56 years ago this Wednesday, Brazilian President João Goulart was overthrown in a right-wing military coup supported by the U.S. government because that's what the U.S. does. It interferes in other countries' elections, then complains when other countries do it to them. And if that doesn't work in getting our preferred people in power, we just overthrow the government through military coups. Yep, that's what we do. In a period of high currency inflation and increasing political unrest in Brazil, Goulart had called for reforms, including rent controls, nationalization of oil refineries, and legalization of the Brazilian Communist Party. And even when a nation decides democratically to pursue such policies, the U.S. will not put up with it. 
not in our hemisphere, we won't. This had alarmed right-wing elements and the military who feared that Golart was leading the country toward alignment with the Soviet Union, which it probably was because the U.S. would have imposed sanctions and forced Brazil to find economic partners elsewhere, which would likely mean the Soviet Union, as the United States was pushing so many countries around the world who had democratically elected leaders towards the Soviet Union by overthrowing them. Units of the Brazilian military made their move, and Golart was forced to flee the country. He went into exile in Uruguay, and Marshal Humberto Castelo Branco was installed as the first leader of a military dictatorship that would last 21 years, in which hundreds of leftist political opponents would be killed and thousands more tortured, even after the restoration of relatively democratic government in 1985, followed by a constitutional right-wing coup in 2016, the lasting effects are still felt today in Brazil, where the old dictatorship is openly praised by the current president, Jair Bolsonaro. And you might want to remember that Bolsonaro replaced Michel Temer, and Michel Temer replaced uh, Dilma Rousseff, and Dilma Rousseff was one of the people who was tortured by the right-wing junta. You know, Jair Bolsonaro, the guy the U.S. supports in Brazil. So, some things never change. The U.S. still backs juntas and coups more than democracy. In Rotten History, April 4th, 1968, 52 years ago this Wednesday, the civil rights leader, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., was assassinated as he stood on a back balcony at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee, because white people are horrible. For years, Dr. King had been the target of countless death threats and had told others that he expected he would one day be murdered. Oddly, Malcolm X said the same thing about himself. Weird, huh? I wonder how Martin and Malcolm knew they would be killed. Hmm. Can't figure that out for the life of me. James Earl Ray would later be convicted of the murder, though many people, including members of King's family, have since alleged that a larger conspiracy was at work. Another oddity. All sorts of people have made a living off of speculating on JFK's assassination. But I don't recall ever seeing a single book or movie about MLK's assassination. FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, who had viewed King as a potential communist threat, had previously ordered investigations and surveillance in an attempt to destroy King's reputation. But after King's death, Hoover consented to have his agency look into King's murder. Many results of that probe still remain classified, and are to be kept secret until the year 2027. So we got that to look forward to in the next new normal. Forty years after his assassination, the government will finally be honest about what they knew and when they knew it about Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination. So for a lot of white supremacists in power back then, seven years from now, they'll be saying, that's rotten history, and this is hell, that is, if those dicks are still alive. Hey, Alex. Who's on tomorrow's Tuesday's live This Is Hell streaming at 10 a.m. here on ThisIsHell.com? Now we got Eileen Applebaum back on the show to talk about her CEPR piece, The U.S. Response to COVID-19, What's in Federal Legislation and What's Not But Still Needed. Yep. I'm uh, assuming the second half of that's going to be a lot more. <laughs> yeah, a lot more. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. I want to thank Brianne Foz for being our guest today. Thanks to Alex Jerry for producing this week's show. Thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for his writing of Rotten History. And always special thanks to Theron Humiston. If it was not for him, you would not be hearing us at all right now. Or if you were listening to us, there'd be all sorts of horrible sounds in the background. Truly revolting radio. This is hell. Talk to you tomorrow.
Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>